Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Thank you for joining us. Devoted meets every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Tonight, we are continuing the series, The Truths We Confess. Beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 20. The Sermon on the Mount is really a, uh, it's a sermon that Jesus gives, and he gives it to his disciples, so it's for believers, and it's really the, the greatest sermon ever preached. And really, the, the topic of the sermon is, uh, is kingdom living, how, how to live out the kingdom of God in, in our lives. What does that look like for a believer? And uh, a big thesis of it is really, how does the law and the gospel go together? Because that's what Jesus is bringing together, the law and the gospel, and, and how is that going to be played out? Are we, do we have a purpose for the law? Is the law done away with? What, what does the law look like in a, a believer in Jesus? Things like that. And so he says this, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Whoever then enrolls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, I thank you for this word. I pray that you would speak to us tonight through it, Lord in our small group plan that we're about to go into, these discipleship groups, I pray that you would speak through each one of us, that you would stir up gifts, that we would spur each other on to love and to good works, that we would prophesy to each other words of exhortation, edification, comfort, Lord. I pray that you would uh, just move in this time, bring bring out things that that you want us to talk about, and uh, and you would just be honored by it, Lord. You would be our teacher, and then ultimately in the teaching. But we give you tonight, Lord, and uh, we pray that your spirit would lead us into all truth. So be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we'll break off into a couple of groups. The girls will be in a group. Charmaine will go ahead and lead the discussion for that. And then the guys will be in a group up here. And we'll come back in about a half hour, and uh, we'll have the, the message. So. Father, I thank you that we have your promise that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish what you have ordained for it to do. Just as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the grass and causes it to grow, that your word will go forth, it will penetrate our heart, and it will cause spiritual growth in our life, Lord. And so we pray that that would happen now. I pray that you would be our teacher, that you would guide us into all truth, Lord, that you would illumine your word to our heart, Lord, that your word would go into our hearts so we would not sin against you, Lord. I pray that your word would wash us, it would regenerate us, it would renew our minds, it would feed our souls, Lord, it would protect us from sin, and it would just uh, point us to you. Uh, We delight in your law, we delight in your word, Lord, and uh, we need more of it. Help us to meditate on it day and night, Lord. But right now we ask that you'd speak to us tonight. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So how did that talk go? Was that easy or did you guys find it difficult to talk about the law? A little confusing about some of these questions and the way that the law relates to us? It's usually not something that we talk about a whole lot in the church, right? It's usually, hey, you know, we're not under the law, or don't be legalistic, we're under grace, that type of thing. Um, and, and so we, we, we tend to ignore it. But the law is very applicable for us today. But it's a confusing thing for us. You know, we don't seem to know how to talk about it. We don't understand how we're to relate to it or apply it to our lives. And I pray that that changes tonight. Um, but there's, there's 
passages that seem confusing. It seems conflicting what the Bible says about the law. In Romans 6.14, it says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Right here, this passage seems a little contradictory, right? You're not under the law, you're under grace. But, but sin isn't going to be master over you. You're not going to sin. Um, Romans 7.22, Paul says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Here he's speaking of it as a, a good thing, a positive thing. There's entire books written about Paul's view of the law. And, and it's constantly changing. There's new ones coming out, and seminaries are debating what Paul means by the law and, 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 and how he speaks of the law and kind of Paul's theology of the law because it's a complicated issue. Jesus' views are not very different. In Matthew 5.17, the passage we're looking at tonight, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. Well, well, what does that mean? In Matthew 23, or 22, verses 36-40, this guy comes to Jesus, and, and he says, Hey, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says to him, You shall love your... The Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Right? So you hear Christians say things like, well, the law has been fulfilled by Jesus. It's not applicable for us today. Well, the law has been narrowed down to two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And all these other ones are kind of irrelevant for us today. And all that to say, this is, is something confusing. This isn't something that we're used to talking about. Some of the Old Testament laws are, are, are pretty crazy, right? You, you read them and it's like, wow, that seems really archaic and really barbaric and, 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 and we don't like it. It doesn't really fit our society today. I mean, even Barack Obama, remember, he used to jokingly say, oh, the law, like the, 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 the Bible, it tells me not to eat selfish and to, to stone my kid if he talks back to me. You, you want me to believe this book? So it, it is confusing to us. In Deuteronomy 22, 22, it says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus 20 verse 9 says, If there is anyone who curses his father or mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltiness is upon him. So are, are, are we today to go out and kill everyone who commits adultery? Are we to kill every child who talks back to his parents or curses his parents? Is that how we're to apply the law today? I don't think so. Uh, so. So how are we to talk about the law? How are we to relate to the law? And I want to talk about that tonight. Tonight, that's what we're talking about. And I think we need to start with what Jesus says about the law. And so we're going to look at this passage in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that preaches kingdom living. It's the greatest sermon ever preached, and Jesus tells us how the gospel and the law come together in the kingdom of God. And for this reason, the sermon gives great instruction and relevance to believers concerning the law. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon, and the passage we're going to look at is the thesis of this sermon. Here Jesus gives us the main point of this whole sermon. The rest of his sermon unpacks these verses that we're looking at now. So in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, I'm going to read it again. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is Jesus' view of the law. This is the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about kingdom living and how the law and the gospel applies to believers. So let's unpack it. For letter A, fill in the word need. Jesus says we need the law. Nowhere in this passage we read, or the whole Sermon on the Mount, does Jesus say that we are to do away with the law. Nowhere does it, he actually talk negatively about the law. He says we as believers in him need the law. That's what he says in these verses. So the first point I want us to see under that is Jesus says that the law is perfect. Look at verse 17. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. What does that mean? What does it mean to fulfill the law? Well, we need to think about this expression prophetically. That the law and the prophets, meaning the entire Old Testament, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Meaning that it pointed forward to Jesus. It, it prophesied of Jesus. It painted a picture of who Jesus is, and Jesus came and fulfilled that. He's really saying that the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets, is about me. I, 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 I fulfill that. It, it, it's fulfilled in me. He, he, he's saying that if you want to be saved, if you want to have the credit of keeping the law, you need to come to me. It's in me that you're going to be fulfilled in the law. We need to remember that the law wasn't some set of arbitrary rules given by God. It it wasn't like God's in heaven and he's like, I'm going to create man and, you know, I I know that they're really going to like, you know, know, doing some of these things. I I don't want them to do that. I don't want them to have fun. So I'm going to make rules against that and make sure that they're not having all the fun that they want to have. No, God, God didn't make laws for that reason. You see, God's law is a perfect reflection of God's character. It's a perfect reflection of God's holiness. It's a reflection of who God is. It's his holy standard. And he gave it to us uh, so that we could know who he is. We could know what holiness is. But that's also the standard that we are to live up to. It's a reflection of God's holy character. And not only is it a reflection of this, but it's how he wants us to live. This law is perfect. The law is a picture of God's perfect holiness. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. And speaking of the law being fulfilled in Christ, we need to realize there's different aspects to the law. Right? There's the moral law. This is the Ten Commandments. Right? This is the, the standard of living that God wants everybody to live by. There's the civil law. These were national laws for Israel. We need to remember Israel is a little bit different than America, right? Uh, here we have the church and state, and those things are separate. Well, they didn't have that. They had their religious leaders and their spiritual leaders were the same. It was a, a, a nation under God. They were a theocracy. And, and, and so they had to have laws to govern people like we have in America. Well, those were in the Bible. God gave them those laws. So they had moral law, they had civil law, and they also had ceremonial law. And these were the laws that dictated Israel's worship. And every aspect of these ceremonial laws, they pointed to the person of Jesus Christ. If you are on Wednesday nights, you've been studying the tabernacle. And Pastor Bob's gone through great detail to show us how every single aspect of the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. That, that even the whole tabernacle itself was a type of Christ. Remember, Jesus comes on the scene in John 1.14. John says this about him, that the Word became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. And, and so the wilderness wanderings, where they have the tabernacle, God was trying to teach him that I'm going to be with you. I'm the with you God. I'm, I'm right in the middle of my people. You had a camp around me, four tribes on the north, four tribes on the south, four tribes on the east, and four tribes on the west. And so if you take an aerial view of this, you, you see a cross going through the desert with God right in the center in the tabernacle. God is with his people. 
And that is a type, a picture of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just the tabernacle, everything in it, all the furnishings, everything about it pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only the tabernacle, but all the sacrifices, the animals that would be sacrificed on those, all pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came, and, and in other words, John the Baptist says, he points to him and he says, hey, the, the, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. Every sacrifice, every Yom Kippur, and every feast day, and, and every day for that matter, was a type, a shadow pointing forward to the Lord. The priesthood pointed to the Lord. He's our ultimate high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's Hebrews chapter 7. That we have a greater high priest because he's a priest king. You see, the, the regular priests, the Levites, they couldn't be king because the king had to come for the title of Judah. But Jesus is a, has a priesthood that, that transcends all of that because he's able to be a priest and a king because he comes from the, the order of Melchizedek. This is Psalm 110. It, it, it's amazing. The feast days, they pointed to Jesus Christ as well. Every single one of them, every single aspect of the feast days pointed to Jesus. And so we're not Jewish. We, we don't live in Israel, so these civil laws don't apply to us. These ceremonial laws, they're all found in Christ, right? These are ways to, to prepare Israel in worship, to worship the Lord, and to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. But now we have the Lord, right? So, so we don't celebrate Yom Kippur anymore, right? We, we celebrate in the Lord Jesus Christ. We find our atonement in Christ, right? We, we don't celebrate the Feast of Booths. We celebrate that God came and tabernacled with us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we, we come to Jesus for everything that the ceremonial law had prescribed for the children of Israel to do. But this leaves the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And these are applicable to all people of all time. In fact, the New Testament authors repeat all but the fourth commandment in the New Testament. All of them but the commandment saying, honor the, the Sabbath is repeated for us to do and to keep in the New Testament. And Hebrews 7 tells us that that is for us as well, it's just a little bit different. Because the, the real application of the Sabbath rest was found in Christ, right? We're to come in and rest in Christ, rest from our works, rest from trying to use the law to attain our justification and, 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 and find peace with God in the person of Jesus Christ. So our Sabbath rest isn't about taking a day off and, and not doing anything. It's about resting from our works, trying to attain salvation in the work of Christ. So, so even that applies to us in a way. You know, the moral and civil laws, they were written down or transcribed by Moses on vellum or parchment. But the moral laws were written down by God himself on stone. This speaks to the permanence of the moral law. God's moral law is a perfect reflection of his holiness, and it's the standard he wants us to live up to. So, so the law is perfect. But number two, Jesus says that the law is timeless. Verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, you know, jot or tittle King James, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not the smallest letter or stroke will pass until God's plan for the universe is accomplished. The last I checked, we're still on earth. Right? We're still here, meaning God's plan for the universe hasn't been accomplished, which means that God's law is still applicable for us today. It's still has a purpose. It, it's still valid. You know, so many Christians believe <coughs> that the law was for the Old Testament, but grace is for the new. This is a kind of a, a, an extreme dispensational view that was made popular by the, the Riley and Schofield study Bibles in the 20th century. They were real popular in, in North America, and it disseminated this view that there was different dispensations and God related to people differently in dis different dispensations. And there was a dispensation for the law and there was a dispensation for grace. And so the Old Testament was for the Jews under the law, but we're under grace. And so those laws had really no application for us. But that was wrong. 
You see, Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9 says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. For the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, Our nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So the gospel was in the Old Testament. It was preached to Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith in the promise of God. He, he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So, so, so we can't say that the Old Testament was law and the New Testament was gospel because here Paul's telling us that the gospel was in the Old Testament. And we see that the law is in the New Testament as well. We see the law really through all of redemptive history. In the garden, they had one law, right? The, 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 law, the, the covenant of works. God told Adam and Eve, do not eat the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. That was the one law that they had. And we know that they, they broke that. And so God instituted the covenant of, uh, of grace, which allowed for there to be a substitute who would keep the covenant of works for you. And if you believe in grace, if you place your faith in his keeping that covenant, then you'll be accredited with righteousness. But they had a law in the garden. And then after that, there was a law. God put the law in people's consciences, and he would judge people by their conscience in between the garden and the Mosaic law. And then God formed the people and delivered them out of Egypt and brought them to Sinai, and, and he gave them the moral law. He gave them the law of God. And then in the New Testament, we have the law of Christ. So all through redemptive history, there's a law of God that's been applicable. So it's not just the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. We see both of them, law and gospel, running all through redemptive history. All the way back to the first sin in the garden. God says that I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And, and the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And the serpent will bruise the woman's heel. That's the Proto-Evangelion, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. So all through the Bible, we see gospel and we see law. God's always had a law for his people. It's timeless. And as long as there's man or fallen man on earth, we're going to need a law. Even in the millennium reign of Christ, there's going to be a law. And we're going to be ruling and reigning with him and forcing it. So God's law is perfect. God's law is timeless. Number three, Jesus says that the law is relevant and applicable. Look at verse 19. He says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So if you teach people, oh, it doesn't really matter that you don't obey the law. The law doesn't matter. Jesus is saying you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you teach the law, if you obey the law, if you make the law a part of your life, you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. So obviously the law is relevant for us today. Obviously there's an application for us today in the kingdom of God. Otherwise Jesus wouldn't have told us to teach it. He wouldn't want it to be taught. Much of Christianity today, though, ignores the law. It, it, it just has nothing to do with the law. They say that the law is bad, that the law brings death. Anytime the law is brought up, it's met with, oh, that's legalism, you're a legalist, get out of here. We, we don't like hearing about the law. We're about grace. You get labeled a Pharisee, things like that. So the church today very much ignores the law. They say that the law isn't for today. But Jesus says, teach the law. Jesus says, teach the law. But the church ignores the law. Why is there such a conflict here? Why does the church have this problem? I would say it's because we don't understand grace. We, we, we don't understand how the grace of God works. If you look on the back of your outline, I have the, this chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you look at article or uh, point number seven on there, paragraph seven, 
under this article, it says, neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of gospel, but to sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law require it to be done. See, God's grace is working in us, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. It, 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 it's working in us to conform us to the law, to conform us to the standard, the holy standard, the righteousness of the law. It conforms us to the law, which is a perfect picture of the law giver. This is what the New Covenant talked about. This is what the New Covenant prophesied, that, that God's Spirit would enable us to keep God's law. Listen to what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. He said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, on their hearts. I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. God says, I will put your name, my laws on your heart. What does that mean? That, that we just know what God's laws are? That they're written on our heart? No, it, it, it's saying that we're going to delight in God's law. That it's going to be the desire of our heart to to fulfill God's law, to obey God's law, to honor God's law. And His Spirit is going to work in us in a way that causes us to do so. Not like our fathers who were in the Old Testament. They were in God's law. They wanted to honor God's law. They wanted to be obedient to God's law. But they couldn't. You know, God says, I was a husband to you. I was everything that a, a, a good husband is. I protected you. I provided for you. I led you. I was close to you. All of these things, but they lacked the power. They didn't have the Holy Spirit conforming them to the image of the law and, and causing them to walk in it. You know, God has fastened the believer's heart in the shape of his law, the Puritans would say. We say it's about love and not about law, but the law teaches us what love really is. It teaches us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. But there's two Tablets. Now, I believe that the entire law was written on each tablet. Uh, it's kind of how Susan covenants work. But um, it was broken in two parts. The first four commandments were the God's commandments in our relationship to Him. It, you know, how He commanded that we're going to relate to Him and honor Him. And the next six had to do with our neighbor. So the law very much teaches us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. And if we do it perfectly, we will fulfill the law, Jesus says. You know, if, if you don't think that the law is applicable for today, just look what's happened since we took the Ten Commandments out of the schools and stopped teaching Ten Commandments to kids. What's happened to our country? God's law is very much relevant and applicable to us. It's perfect, timeless, and it's relevant. Look at point four. Jesus says the law is insufficient. It's perfect, it's timeless, it's relevant, it's applicable. It's good, but it's insufficient. Look at verse 20. It says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You don't understand that the right way. Because we don't see Pharisees the way that people did in the first century. We hear the term Pharisee, and we think of it as like a pejorative term, right? It's kind of a, a bad name. It's a put-down. But that's not the way that people in the first century would have heard the term Pharisee. If you would have gone to someone in the first century, a Jewish person, and asked them, man, like, who's, 
who, who, who's the best at like honoring God? Who's the best at following God? Who's the most religious? Who's the most holy? These types of questions. But what about like the Pharisees? Right? They were, the Pharisees were at the top of, of Judaism. They were the most righteous, the most religious, the most godly people on the earth at that time in people's estimation. They lived their entire life to fulfill, or their entire lives to fulfill the 613 laws in the Old Testament. And not only that, but then they subjected themselves under the Talmud and the Mishnah, which were really commentaries on the law. They were laws about keeping the laws. So they had just endless number of laws. I mean, there was this thing called the, the bruised and the bleeding Pharisees. Have you heard that term before? And, and you see, the Pharisees, they would walk down the street, and whenever they would see a woman on the street, they would close their eyes to protect themselves from looking at her with lust or covetousness. But then they would run into things. And so they had bruises and bloody noses and things like that because of these laws that they were made trying to help them protect, or protect them from breaking God's laws. They had laws concerning spitting. Right? You, could, you could spit on concrete or on cement, but, but you can't spit on dirt because that might turn to mud, and that might be considered uh, forming clay, which would be worse and breaking the law. Looking in a mirror was prohibited in the Talmud and Mishnah because you might see a pimple and then be tempted to pop it, which would be considered a work and breaking the law. That's how ridiculous it got. But they spent their entire life trying to keep these. They were really serious about God's law. So how would Jesus' listeners have heard verse 20? Jesus says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They would have been like, no luck for me. What hope do I have? They keep all 613 laws. I can't even remember 30 of them. What hope do I have? I'm doomed. But that's not what Jesus means. What does it mean? What is Jesus talking about that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? We need to be better at at, at doing the law. We need to come up with even more laws to protect us from breaking the laws that protect us from breaking the laws. We saw how silly that got already. No, it's saying that we need a righteousness that's not our own. We need an alien righteousness, Martin Luther said. We need to be imputed with Jesus' righteousness. Jesus is the one who kept the law, and and we need that imputed to us. I mentioned it. We, We failed, Adam failed, the covenant of works in the garden. And God was so gracious, he gave us a second covenant, the covenant of grace that allowed for a substitute to fulfill the covenant of works for us. And the Lord Jesus Christ does that. And so when we place our faith that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, that he lived the perfect life and fulfilled the covenant of works for us, then we are accredited, we're imputed with his righteousness, which gives us that righteousness which exceeds even the scribes and the Pharisees. Point number five, Jesus takes the law to another level. Put on the word level. We're going to see throughout the, if you keep reading the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see that Jesus doesn't just say, hey, the law matters. Yeah, yeah, we need the Old Testament law. He's going to take the law to another level. He's going to take it and, and bring out the true meaning of the law, the spiritual meaning. He's going to say things like this in Matthew 5. 21 and 22, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit a murder, but whoever commits a murder shall be liable of the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So he said, it's not enough just to not murder. It's a matter of your heart. If you're not having the right heart attitude towards your brothers and sisters, then you're a murderer. You've broken the law. How about 27 and 28? You have heard it said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her in his heart. Right? Here, here it's, it's a spiritual application. It's not just the, the physical act. It starts in the heart. It starts with lust. It says that he expands the law. The law is a lot more applicable than, than we actually think. Let it be thrown the word rightly. But we need to know how to use the word rightly. 1 Timothy 1, 8-11, Timothy says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless, rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, and for murderers, for in- and immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. See, if we were righteous, we wouldn't need a law. But we're sinners, and therefore we need a law. And that law is good if we use it the right way. Now, the law has three uses for the believers. That's only number three. There's, there's three ways that the law can be used by us rightly or, or, or in a way that is healthy for us and good for us and brings us closer to Christ. The first one is, is there's a civic or political function for the law. There's a civic or political function for the law. And the truth is, is that the law of God restrains sin. God uses the law to keep people from fulfilling and expressing the rottenness and wickedness of their fallen hearts. It's not perfect, but for the most part, it works. This is why countries that base their laws off the law of God, uh, or those with Judeo-Christian values, are so blessed. And we've, and we've seen lately that when you take those laws away, uh, when you change those laws, those blessings go away, and lawlessness increases. Right? Our own history testifies of that. Right? The early 1900s, they take the, the Word of God out of schools, and then in the 1960s, I believe, they take the Ten Commandments out of the schools, and what happens? Our, our culture just starts sliding down a, a slide of depravity. It starts getting worse and worse and worse because God's law restrains sin. You know, there's a lot of thought today, or a lot of talk today about uh, the word theocracy. Have you heard that word being thrown around? It's usually claimed by Democrats, and it's usually used in a negative way. Like, we don't want a theocracy. They think that all Republicans want to bring in some type of theocracy. But I want to say this, that every society is really a theocracy when you think about it. It really is. The question is, is, is what God is at the head of this theocracy? Is it Yahweh, or is it the God of self? Is it God, or is it Demas? You know the word Demas? It, it, it literally means of the people. That's where we get the word democracy. Right? It, 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 the, the idea of democracy is that we're, it, it, everything's ruled by the people. It's, it, it's of the people. It's fallen man gets to say and decide what he gets to do. You, you, you know, the, 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 church, the early American fathers, uh, our forefathers that came here and, and settled America, they would have never been for democracy. They would have seen democracy as, as, some, as, as an, an even worse evil. Why would we want people with fallen hearts making the decisions over us? But we want a representative. We want a godly man that we choose to be our representative and make choices for us. But the reason that the left is so afraid of theocracy is because they want to be their own God. They want to rule. They want to rule. Remember the garden. How did Satan come and tempt Eve? He said, "When you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did he say? You're going to be like God. You're going to be your own God. You're going to make your own decisions. You're going to do what you want. You're going to decide what's good. You're going to decide what's evil. That's what they're going for." 
So Adam and Eve, they fell into sin and they fell out of communion with God. But remember the story of Jacob? Right? Heel catcher, supplanter, con artist, Jacob. How he's running from his brother, running from his family, and he spends all night wrestling with God. And God changes him. Right? And, and, and what does God say? You're no longer Jacob, but you're, 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 you're Israel. You're, you're, you're governed by God. And then from Jacob, he, he built a family. And then a family turned into a nation. And then through that nation, he brought the Messiah, the, the, the true God, lawgiver, the one who was going to fulfill the law. And ultimately, he was the one that was going to be the beginning of the recreation, the one that was going to start restoring things back to God and to God's rule. It was through this nation that came out of Jacob where God was going to give him his law and, and give him his holy standards and, and, and reveal himself through them and, and protect them and be with them as they walk through this world. There's a saying, it says, find the source of the law and you've found the God of that society. And I think that is absolutely true. John Owen said this, he said, a universal respect to all of God's commandments is the only preservation against sin. It's the only preservative against sin. If we want to preserve sin in our culture, it's going to be through having laws that reflect the Word of God. But the law, it does, it restrains sins. It keeps wicked hearts from fully expressing themselves. Number two, there's a pedagogical function to the law. So fill in the word pedagogical. If you don't know how to spell that, you could put a teaching function. So you're learning the Bible and vocabulary. It's like a, it's like the, the Bobo card, right? You, know, you get a twofer here tonight. There's a pedagogical or, or, or teaching function to the law. In Galatians 4, Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything, but is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elements of things of the world. We were held under the law until we had enough knowledge to be able to become mature and, and, and accept Christ. But, but when pedagogical, the, the, the root of it is, is pedagogue, which was a, a, a Roman slave who was a, a tutor. Right? Or someone whose job was to teach and tutor kids and teach them everything they needed to know to be a complete adult in Roman society. And so Paul's saying that the law is that for us. It's going to teach us. It's going to tutor us so that we could come to Christ and, and, and become complete. It, it, it's going to tell us that we're a Savior, that we need, that we need a Savior, that, that we're sinners, and, and that we need help. The, the law tells us how much we need Jesus. Have you guys heard of Great Comfort and are familiar with Great Comfort's ministry? And his whole thing is this. It's using the law to, to tell people that they are sinners and, and they need a Savior. Like you'll ask them, hey, have you ever stolen anything? And regardless of the price. People are like, yeah, of course. And he's like, so what does that make you? And they say, a thief. You're like, oh, okay. What do you call, right, by your own admission, you're a thief. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Yeah. Well, what does that make you? An adulterer. So by your own admission, you're a thief and an adulterer. Have you ever killed someone? No. Well, Jesus says that if you regard hate for your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. And well, I've done that. Well, what does that make you? A murderer. All right, by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, murdering adulterer. Now you're going to stand before God, who's a holy judge, and who has to judge righteously, is he going to let you into heaven? Well, well, no, not if he judges righteously because I'm a lying, thieving, adultering, murderer. Right? And, and, and then he'll, he'll share the gospel. He'll say, you know, hey, well, there's good news that God has sent me his son who's fulfilled the law for you and died the penalty of the law for you. And if you place your faith in him, his righteousness will be imputed to you. 
or attempting to achieve sanctification by your own effort and work. We're not saved by works. We're also not sanctified by works. Yeah, what we do matters in our sanctification, but it's it's God working to willing to do for His good pleasure. Paul says that, that I worked harder than, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I worked harder than everybody else. But it wasn't me. It, it was God's grace working in us. See, Paul was laboring. He would move forward in the faith. But as he moved forward, he would look back and realize that it was the grace of God. It was God's grace propelling. It was God's grace working in him. If you're getting your sense of self-worth or identity or merit or rest from your own effort, that's legalism. If that's what you get your, your identity, if that's what makes you feel good, is the things that you're doing for God, you're, you're heading into legalism. What should make us feel good is what God did for us. And what we do should be an outflowing of that. You see, the legalist sees the law as salvation. The antinomian sees the law as the problem. I like what, what John Stott says about this. He says, legalists fear the law and are in bondage to it. Antinomians hate the law and repudiate it. You see, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that both the one, the antinomian, the one who disregards the law, and the one who keeps the law could both equally go to hell. You could go to hell by keeping the law. Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not, it's not your law-keeping that's going to get you into heaven. It's just not going to work. It's Jesus' law-keeping. I want to say this, too. If, if, if your Christian walk seems hard, if you seem worn out, if you seem tired, that, that might be a sign that you're heading into legalism as well. Because Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, when I'm worn out, I often realize that I've yoked myself to someone or something else that I shouldn't have been, and I'm carrying a burden that I shouldn't be carrying. Now, there's going to be times that we're going to be tired, you know. Life is hard. Ministry is hard. There's tribulations. There's trials. There's all of that. But I find when I'm really worn out, it's because I'm trying to earn some favor with God. I'm falling into legalism. I'm not experiencing the blessedness of the gospel of rejoicing that, that Jesus did it all for me and rejoicing in his love and rejo rejoicing in what he did and, and experiencing that because that empowers us. That gives us strength. That gives us power. It's been said that the Bible is a story of two mountains. Love on one mountain is Mount Sinai. Right? And the law, God's glory, was displayed on, on Mount Sinai. I mean, in a huge way, there was lightning, there was thunder, there was clouds of smoke. God audibly spoke. I mean, God appeared before Moses and wrote on a tablet. I mean, God's glory was displayed in a massive way on Mount Sinai. Right? But Mount Sinai keeps saying, do, do, do. You see, what, what the law does is it, it breaks your legs and then tells you to run a mile in five minutes and then mocks you because you can't. See, but grace is different. Grace bids you to fly and it gives you wings and empowers you to, to do things you couldn't otherwise do. So one mountain is Mount Sinai. But see, but then there's another mountain. There's this little hill outside Jerusalem called Golgotha. And on that mountain, God's glory was displayed when he crucified his son. When he took the curse of the law for us, and then he rose on the third day. And all who trust in him are imputed with his righteousness. And so, so what mountain are we going to go to? Are we going to go to the mountain that just keeps telling us to do and mocking us because we can't? Are we going to go to the mountain where it's, it's done, and, and, and we go and we're just motivated by, by love? You see, Mount Sinai is motivated by fear. You better do this or I'm going to judge you. Calvary is motivated by love. Love for what Jesus, God so loved us that he gave his only son. And we get to come and experience that love. And then we get to go out in the power of that love and show our love to the Savior by keeping his commandments. 
Pray Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John adds that they won't be burdensome to us. So it'll be easy. It'll be what we want to do because his law will be written on our hearts. Application number two. I'm almost done. We need to see all the law through the lens of Christ and his kingdom. Right? So when we read about the law in the Old Testament or the New, we need to see it through the lens of Jesus and through his kingdom. Now, what does this look like? Practically, how do we do this? Well, let's circle back to those laws I mentioned in the beginning. Deuteronomy 22.2. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman, the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus 29. If anyone is who curses his father or mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His blood guiltiness is upon him. What do we do with these laws? How do we explain these laws to people? How do we teach laws like these to our kids or our future kids? Do we tell them we need to try really, really, really hard not to commit adultery? Or try really, really hard not to curse your father or mother? Do we make other laws or rules or, or put boundaries there to keep them from doing that? Do we make our daughters wear chastity belts and, and put a, 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 a muzzle on our kids so that they can't curse us to protect them from these laws, from having to be stoned to death? No, we show them these laws in the light of Christ. You see, he came and he was perfectly obedient for us. And then he took the penalty of those laws. And, and if we love him, how could we then, therefore, keep doing these things that cause him to hang on the tree and to be tortured to death for us? Psalm 130, verse 4 says, But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So we teach our kids that God hates adultery so much. God, well, that he was willing to, to allow people in the Old Testament to suffer that penalty, to display how much he hates adultery. And if he hates adultery that much, we should keep ourselves from that. And so we need to keep ourselves in love with God. And we need to keep ourselves pure so that when we do have a wife, we could honor God with that purity. Well, God honors authority so much that he doesn't want you to curse your father and your mother. He wants us to honor these authorities in our life. Point number three, we must be found in the one who kept the law. There's only one person who's ever kept the law, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way of salvation is to be in him. And we need to be kept in the one who kept the law. Because if we're not kept in him, then we're under the law ourselves. And it's impossible for us to fulfill the law. Right? Because we've got a, a, a fallen nature. We're corrupted. Right? We've been diseased with this thing called sin that affects and taints everything we do. Our, our, our most righteous deed, Isaiah tells us, is a filthy rag. So there's one who, who's been good. There's one who's righteous. There's one who kept the law. But we have the ability to be in him and to be kept in him. And that's how we'll be right with God. Amen. So God, I, I thank you for this. I thank you for your law. I pray that these three uses of the law would be evident in our life. That it would restrain sin for us, Lord. That it would show us our need more and more for your gospel, for our Savior. And then that it would, your spirit would cause us to walk in these laws and be conformed into your holiness, Lord. I pray that we would preach the law and the gospel, that we would tell people that they need a, a Savior, that they're sinners, that they've violated God's law, but there's hope. There's one who has kept the law, and we could be kept in him through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open doors for us to share this message with people this week, Lord. And, uh, and, and I pray that you'd give us grace to speak boldly and give them grace to receive it and to be saved, God. I thank you for everyone here. I pray for those that aren't here. 
pray that you bring us back together next week. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.